I encourage you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 61 through, uh, six, or 51 through 62. We are beginning tonight the next big or major section in Luke's gospel. Jesus' earthly ministry, which began uh, chapters ago, has consisted in the region of Galilee up until this point. But now in our passage before us, we see Jesus beginning his journey down to Jerusalem to do what he came uh, to this earth to do, to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead. So Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts. Well, we all love hearing stories of individuals who exercise much grit and perseverance and resoluteness and bring about some great or or good outcome in their life. You might think of entrepreneurs, or athletes, or soldiers, mountain climbers. You were great hardship, but persevere through that hardship and accomplish some great feat. We like these stories because they're inspiring. And they're inspiring because we all intuitively know that a meaningful life is not a life of ease and comfort, but it's a life in which we push ourselves outside of the known into the realm of chaos and the unknown, where we endure some hardship and struggle, yet we persevere through that hardship and struggle and accomplish something good, even great. We love these stories in in drama or literature or biographies. For instance, I remember recently I was reading a study that that said that uh, research shows that 
One of the most stressful seasons of life for a young couple is, or a couple, is when they have small children. Now, I would imagine those of you who are in that season or have been through that season, the stress that that season of life brings does not make you regret having children, or at least you won't admit to have regretted having children. We all know that a meaningful life does not equal an easy life. In fact, if you look back upon your life, some of the most meaningful things have been maybe some of the hardest things, or at least they have not been easy. So these themes, these virtues of grit, perseverance, resoluteness, are the key to a meaningful life in our ordinary existence. Well, this shouldn't surprise us that if this is true, In the realm of Christianity, these virtues, these themes of grit, perseverance, and resoluteness also play a prominent role. We indeed have a resolute religion. But in the context of Christianity, these virtues, perseverance, resoluteness, grit, lead to ultimate meaning. That is to say, they don't just have consequences in this age, but they bear consequences in the age to come. But that leads us to an important question. How? How does perseverance, resoluteness, lead to ultimate meaning in our lives? Well, that's a good question. A question I'd like us to press into as we consider this passage. There's two main points that this passage brings out for us. We see Jesus' resolve and our resolve. So Jesus' resolve and our resolve. So I'd like us to consider both of these points and then at the end we hopefully, Lord willing, will bring it together and answer that how question. How does resoluteness lead to ultimate meaning? So first, Jesus' resolve. If you look with me at verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now Jesus' mission was not merely to cast out demonic spirits or to temporarily heal individuals of their ailments and diseases. Now his mission, his objective was much greater than that. His mission, as we considered just a couple passages ago, was to come as the new and greater Moses to accomplish the new and greater Exodus. His mission, as he told his disciples here in chapter 9, was to suffer, die, and rise again from the dead. And the climax of this work was accomplished in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place where he went to the cross, the culmination of his obedience. Jerusalem was the place where he would rise from the dead. And this word that that Luke uses for set, Jesus set his face. Its meaning in the original language refers to being determined to accomplish an objective. Jesus was determined to accomplish his mission, his objective. In fact, The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 50, he he prophesies about the servant of the Lord, this Christ who would come. And he says that this Christ 
would set his face like flint to accomplish his mission and objective. And we see that fulfilled here in our passage. It's important to realize that this mission, this objective of Jesus, didn't come to him once he was here on earth. It's not as if Jesus thought to himself, it would be kind of cool to come down to this, this creation and take on a true humanity. And then he comes and takes on a true humanity and he thinks, wow, you know, I have a true human flesh. What should I do now? Well, there's all these sinners around me. Maybe I should save them. This mission, this objective, was given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And this mission is is what motivated his incarnation. This objective is what motivated him coming to this earth, being born of a virgin and taking on a true body and a true soul. And Jesus had much need for perseverance. The life that he underwent was not easy. And we see some examples of the difficulty of his mission even here in this passage. You'll notice that after Jesus says these words, he sends some of his disciples on ahead of him. And he sends them to prepare a place for them, or prepare a place for him in uh, a village of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans end up rejecting Jesus. They will show him no hospitality. And their rejection, their inhospitality, is likely due to the centuries-long feud and tension between the Judeans and the Samaritans over many, many issues. But nevertheless, we, we learn that Jesus had no place to lay his head as he himself tells a potential disciple. He was homeless. Likely had to sleep under the stars. It would not have been easy. It would not have been comfortable. Something that we so easily take for granted in our our own day and age, a roof over our head, is something that Jesus couldn't guarantee would happen or that he would have as he journeyed to Jerusalem. Furthermore, notice James and John's response to the Samaritans' inhospitality. Jesus, should should we call down fire upon this village? Should we give them final judgment here and now for how they're treating you? It's another example of the disciples just not getting it. Jesus' first coming was not a coming of final judgment. It was a coming in which he brought about the kingdom of God. His second coming is a coming of of final judgment. But not his first coming. But James and John, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They wanted Jesus to come in all glory and judgment now. And James and John, in a sense, were tempting Jesus in a way that was similar to Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You may recall chapters ago, a few months ago, we considered that passage where Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil, many of the devil's temptations were things that were not in themselves sinful. There's nothing wrong with Jesus demonstrating his power when he's hungry after a fast and turning uh, stones into bread. There's nothing inherently evil with Jesus throwing himself off a cliff and demonstrating his power as the angels come and save him. There's nothing inherently evil in that. But it was not proper. It was not fitting 
for that period and time in Jesus' mission. Jesus had to walk the path of humiliation and suffering in order to earn glory and exaltation for him and all his people. The path to glory had to run through the cross. There was no other way. And Satan was trying to steer him off that path, off his mission, and saying, no, Jesus, you can have glory now. You can have exaltation now. Why are you bothering with this, this life of humiliation? And James and John are, are sort of doing the same thing. Jesus, why don't you just come in judgment and glory now? It's not fitting. He has to go through the cross. So nevertheless, Jesus has had, had much need for perseverance. Not only was he spending all this time with these thick-headed disciples, but at times he had no place to lay his head. Well, I already mentioned that this word set that Luke uses, it refers to being determined to accomplish an objective. And this objective of Christ, which I've already mentioned, is his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and being taken up into heaven. And this all climatically happens in Jerusalem. But can we get any more specific than this? Why did Jesus have to do these things? Well, he had to do these things because salvation for sinners could be made in no other way. But can we get even more specific? Who are these sinners? Well, these sinners are, according to John 6, his sheep, the sheep whom the Father gave to Jesus before the foundation of the world. It's his bride, the bride whom the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, you can be assured that you are his bride. You are a member of his sheep and thus you were part of his motivation for him setting his face to go to Jerusalem. You were what motivated Jesus to undergo such immense suffering and difficulty. It was you. It's quite stunning. We all know that in our, in our ordinary lives, whenever we undertake a new goal, a goal that's going to take much discipline, much perseverance, we can't lose sight of the why. If we lose sight of the why, we're not going to last very long especially if whatever we're trying to do requires much sacrifice and discipline. You know, for instance, if someone is trying to lose weight and get into shape, if they lose sight of the why, that is to say the health benefits, how they might feel, how they might look, if they lose sight of that, they're not going to last very long in sacrificing each and every day and eating healthy and being active. If you're trying to reach a financial goal, a savings goal, and live frugally in the here and now, if you lose sight of that goal, you're not going to last very long being frugal in the here and now. You think of an athlete persevering through preseason. If they're not reminding themselves of how good it's going to feel to be in shape and prepare for that championship game, they're not going to be motivated to work hard in, in that preseason. I remember when I, when I was playing uh, basketball in college, my least favorite part of the season was that preseason. Four to six weeks of practice every day, six days a week. Lifting weights, 
running. It was not fun. I would keep reminding myself of how good it's going to feel when the games start and I, we're in shape and we're operating as a well-oiled machine. Constantly have to remind yourself of the why. Well, as we read in verse 51 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, you were the why. You were the why that motivated Jesus to accomplish this mission. To exercise all of this perseverance. You were the why that he was recalling to mind day after day that motivated him. You know, think of it this way. You, you were like, you were like the, the health benefits that someone who's trying to, to lose weight recalls to mind day after day. You were like the financial goal, the savings goal that someone who's trying to live frugally recalls to mind day after day. You were like the, the championship game that the athlete recalls to mind day after day. Think of the difference between receiving a generic letter in the mail which says, to whom it may concern. We all hate that mail, don't we? Toss in the garbage right away. Now compare that to a handwritten note by a dear friend or family member. That's the type of mail we love receiving. We hang on every word. We're excited to open. I think it's easy for us to sometimes think of the objective of Christ, this mission of Christ, this gift of salvation, as as being like this generic letter which is addressed to whom it may concern. When rather, it's, it's like a personal note from a dear friend, handwritten addressed to you in particular. Thus, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he had you in mind. Now, just think about that this week. Meditate upon that this week. Especially as you think about the life of Christ, as you read through the Gospels. You were what motivated him. You, in particular, your struggles, your sins, your disposition, securities, hardships, you were what motivated Jesus to go through all that he went through. Let's now spend a few moments reflecting upon our resolve. That is to say, our call to resoluteness. You'll see in verse 57, uh, we read that as Jesus and his disciples are traveling, someone comes up to him and says, You know, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus is like, Oh, really? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like, do you really know what you're signing up for? Last night, we had no place to sleep. Do you realize the kind of life that you are going to have to live? Have you counted the cost, Jesus is saying? Now, there's obvious dissimilarity between being a first century disciple of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century. And we have to recognize some of the hyperbole and We can't read this in an overly literal way. So as to say, if we want to be a disciple of of Christ, we somehow have to do away with our desire for shelter. And to be a true disciple is one who who lives, who's homeless. That's not, not, I think, what Jesus is saying. Rather, we need to press deeper and think about what is the deeper principle that lies behind Jesus' words Well, if you were Jesus or one of his disciples and you were journeying to Jerusalem, 
and you were rejected by a village, you had no place to sleep, how would you feel? I think I would feel homeless, rootless, as if I, I don't quite belong. Feel like a pilgrim. Well, that's exactly how Peter describes every Christian in every age. We are sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, exiles in this present age, in this world. And that is what Jesus is getting at. When you sign up to be a Christian, you're signing up to be a, a pilgrim. A pilgrim who doesn't quite belong in this world because our ultimate identity and citizenship resides in the age to come. And especially in our own context where our, our culture and society is becoming increasingly hostile to orthodox convictions and beliefs and practices, we are, we're going to feel this identity all the more, that we are a pilgrim people. We don't quite belong in this world. And this is hard. This is hard. But this is part of the cost of discipleship. What we're signing up for as we become a member of Christ and his church. As we move on in verses 59 through 60, we see uh, Jesus approaches someone else on this journey. And he, and he says, follow me. And this person says, well, let me first go and, and bury my father, and then I will come and follow you. Then Jesus responds and says, let the dead bury uh, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, commentators debate as to what exactly this person means. Uh, some think that this person's father has recently passed away, and so he has to take care of these funeral preparations immediately. While others believe that the father probably is in good health, and the person feels obliged to stay closer to home until the father passes. So this person feels an obligation to the father until, until he passes on. And then he will feel freed up to be able to go and follow Jesus. Whichever way we go, I don't think it, it, it changes our interpretation all that much. But it is also helpful to know that in Judaism... Burying one's parents was a very, um, was, was an honorific duty. It was one way in which they sought to obey the fifth commandment, to honor one's father and mother. This was an important aspect of their piety. In fact, they even risked being ritually defiled by coming in contact with a dead corpse in order to bury and be a part of those preparations of, of their parents. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Is he, similar to our reading of the law, is he, is he saying that this person should kind of do away with their family? Do away with the fifth commandment? Is he denigrating the natural family? When he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, it's likely saying, let, let those who are not my disciples, let those who are not members of my kingdom, let, they, let them be concerned with such things. What is Jesus saying here? Well, I don't think that Jesus is doing away with the fifth commandment or denigrating the natural family. Because ordinarily, we are in a position where we can both honor Christ and honor our family in those relationships. 
We can be faithful members of his kingdom as well as faithful members of our natural family. But it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes our allegiance to Christ and our allegiance to our natural family come into conflict. Come to a head. And we have to pick one or the other. And Jesus is saying here that he takes priority. Allegiance to him and his kingdom takes priority over every other earthly relationship. And some of you may have even experienced this in your own life. Where you've been in that crossroads, that that ultimatum where you've had to pick one or the other. Pick obedience to Christ and his word or allegiance to the family members. And it's hard. It's hard when, when we're in that position. We have to demonstrate our allegiance to Christ even though it has negative consequences on some of our familial relationships. This is part of the cost of discipleship that, that Jesus is explaining for us. I think he's making a similar point in verse 61. As another person uh, comes up to him and says that he or she will follow Jesus, but first wants to say goodbye to her family, his or her family. He's telling us that he and his kingdom takes priority over every other relationship. Well, notice Jesus' concluding words to this last potential disciple. He says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now in Palestine, it was, it was quite known that the, the soil there was rocky. And the image that Jesus is portraying for us is, is the farmer who has one hand in the plow and the other hand is goading the oxen. Now if that's, that's the image and you are plowing in a rocky terrain, you look back, what's going to happen? You're gonna, you might lose your footing. You're, you're at least not going to be plowing a straight line. So Jesus is saying, in terms of our discipleship, we can't look back. We need to have our eyes fixed forward. Just as Jesus set his face ahead to go to Jerusalem, we are to set our eyes ahead upon the new Jerusalem. And where our minds are set upon the age to come, the new Jerusalem, we are reminded, oh yeah, this world is not our home. That we are pilgrims. We are reminded that Oh, Christ and his kingdom is our ultimate allegiance. But when we start to look back, that's when we become disillusioned. We begin to think that this world is our home. We begin to think that we have other allegiances that trump allegiances to Christ. Well, as we conclude, I'd like to, uh, Lord willing, bring this together. I began by noting that you know, these virtues of perseverance, resoluteness, grit, they, they are a key to living a meaningful life in our ordinary experience. That's why we love hearing stories of individuals who, who exercise such virtues. We also noted that resoluteness is a powerful theme in Christianity. And it leads to ultimate meaning. That is to say, it leads to meaning beyond this temporal existence. But How? How does perseverance lead to this ultimate meaning? Well, the answer to this how question is not found in our resoluteness. 
The answer to that how question is found in Jesus' resolve for you. It's because Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem that you can be assured that your sins have been forgiven, you are a citizen of heaven, and that you stand righteous in the sight of God. That's ultimate meaning. Meaning that transcends mere good circumstances in this life. Beloved, this is what makes Christianity distinctive. Every other religion will preach some sort of perseverance and resoluteness. Commitment to a a certain moral code. System of beliefs or doctrines. But no other religion says that ultimate meaning, salvation rests not in our perseverance and commitment to those things, but in the perseverance and obedience of another person outside of us, that is in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, your hope, your confidence, your security rests not in your resolve, but in Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem for you and your salvation. So let us pray.